Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua chapter 7? As we come to Joshua chapter 7 in our study through this book, the children of Israel are coming off of their first and greatest victory in their conquest of Canaan. Jericho, as we've already pointed out several times, was the strongest stronghold of the enemy in the promised land, and now it lay in ruins. All that was left of this once impregnable fortress of a city was a pile of rubble. And because of it, well, the children of Israel were feeling flush with victory. They're feeling pretty good about themselves. This, of course, gave them a false sense of invincibility, which is going to lead to their first and only defeat in what God had promised would be a land of victory. See, the conquest of Canaan lasted seven years. And during that time, Israel only lost one battle, the Battle of Ai. You know, we read at the end of chapter 6, at the end of Israel's stunning victory over Jericho. As we come to the end of chapter 6, we read the closing verse, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. However, the seventh chapter of the book of Joshua opens with an ominous but. This was an indication that even though victory had been won at Jericho, the seeds of defeat had been sown in the nation. You see, we read in verse 1, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. This goes back to something God had commanded in chapter 6, a divine directive that he had given to the people. He said in chapter 6, verse 18, he's talking about them taking now Jericho. And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Now it was common when an army went up against a, a city or, or um, a nation and they gained the victory, the spoil belonged to them. God recognized that. That was common practice. It's just that the spoil of Jericho was the first fruits of their conquest of the land of Canaan. And God had said through Moses that all the first fruits of the blessings he would give to them in the land belonged to him. God always gets the first fruits. This even applies to our lives. The first fruits is the first of all the blessings God has given to us. Giving God the first part of your day, the first part of your resources, and in Israel's case, the first part of the produce of the land, even the spoil of the land, since this was the very first battle in Canaan. And so God says, the first fruits of spoil of this battle belongs to me. In fact, in Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, we read what God said through Moses. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord. Now, If they did not, but brought those things into their own house, they became accursed things. You were stealing from God. Those things were cursed then. And that would bring some real problems into your home. Deuteronomy 7, verse 26. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. Now, that would include idols, of course. Uh, as Israel got into idolatry later on, but it also included these dedicated things. They belonged to God. They were forbidden from being taken and used for yourself. 
If you did, they were accursed and you're, you brought a curse into your family. So that was God's directive. Now we see Achan's disobedience. In verse 1 it says, Then the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. The name Achan means trouble. Trouble. And as God had warned, if any of the children of Israel took any of the forbidden things, well, they would make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. You think when God said that, maybe the whole nation would have turned and looked at the guy named Trouble. Maybe they should have kept their eyes on that guy, Achan. God said, you take some of the curses, you take what belongs to me, you're going to trouble the whole camp of Israel. The guy's name is Trouble. We should keep our eyes on this guy. They didn't do that, obviously. So Achan went ahead and he took some of the things God had forbidden. Why did he do it? I mean, what motivated Achan to do the very thing God had forbidden and bring sin and a curse into the camp of Israel? Well, let me ask you, why do any of us do that kind of stuff? We all as Christians know what God has said, yet we violate his word all the time. Why do we do that? Well, there's a variety of reasons. First of all, we know that sin is selfish, which means that we tend to justify our actions based on why we feel we deserve to have or to do the things God has forbidden. We're very good at this. Sometimes we do it even subconsciously when we sin. We're always in our mind trying to rationalize or justify why it's okay for us, even though God forbid this thing, this practice, this whatever it might be. We're always trying to figure out, well, why it's okay for me. I think that Achan probably did that too. In fact, author Philip Keller offers some insights into how Achan could have rationalized his actions. He said, and I quote, After all, was he not a man of war? Had he not risked his life in crossing the Jordan? Was he not entitled to the spoils of war now that the city of Jericho had fallen? Didn't tradition dictate that the spoil was the reward of battle? Why should he necessarily capitulate to Joshua's command about common people avoiding the accursed belongings of the Amorites? End quote. Yeah, right. What do you mean I can't have that stuff? I work for that. I crossed the Jordan. I took my life into my own hands, coming and fighting the battle of Jericho. Why, why can't we have some of that spoil? Because God said you can't. What can I tell you? We can all justify it. We can all say, yeah, but I deserve it. It's not, it doesn't matter what you deserve or what you think you deserve. It only matters what God has said. Now, God would allow them to take the spoil from every other campaign, every other battle they would face in the promised land. But the first fruits belong to God. And if you take God's first fruits and don't give him the first part of your day, your resources, and your time, let me tell you this, you're going to suffer the consequences. If you put God first in your life, he will bless you. And if you don't, he can't bless you. So it's up to you. But I'm also sure that Achan had some noble intentions in mind when he disobeyed God. I'm sure he rationalized in his mind how much this would help his family. Don't forget now, guys, this was before the time of government programs and things and uh, life insurance policies and so on. I mean, a man was the uh, leader of his family, but the main provider, of course. If something happened to him, and they didn't live very long in those days, uh, life was hard, and especially if you were a soldier, you could die at any time. Then who was going to take care of your family? I'm sure he probably thought, well, you know what? If I just take a few things, and they estimate the uh, amount of the things that he took added up to about $25,000. That was a king's ransom back then. That would have taken care of his family for the rest of their lives. 
And so he justified by saying, well, you know what? I need to take this stuff so that my family is provided for. I don't know if I'm going to die the next battle. I've seen many men who have rationalized doing things that were forbidden by God or flat out illegal because, you know what, I have to do this to take care of my family. Hey, God will take care of your family. The best thing you can do for your family is obey God and be a witness, be a, an example to them. And let God worry about taking care of everything else. He will. See, what Achan thought was going to bring life to his family, as we're going to see next week, ultimately brought death. How sad. But our capacity to rationalize our disobedience towards God seems almost boundless, doesn't it? Later on, when Achan's sin was discovered, and we're going to read about that and study it next week in detail, but later on when Achan's sin is discovered, Joshua admonishes him to, you know, come clean, quote-unquote, and explain what happened. And in verse 21, Achan confesses the steps that led to his disobedience against God. In verse 21, he said, I saw, I coveted, I took. That is always the progression of sin. I saw, I coveted, which means to desire strongly or to lust after, I took. And folks, let me just say this to you. Between coveting and taking comes the justifying and rationalizing of sin. Between the time you covet and the time you take something God has forbidden or do something God has forbidden, there comes that period of rationalizing and justifying. You, you may do it even un, uh, subconsciously because it, we do it so much. But we all do it. Be conscious of this next time when you're contemplating doing something God has forbidden. You know it's wrong. And tell me if you don't start thinking in your head, but you know what? It's okay for me because of this. Or I deserve it because of this. Don't go down that road. Okay? Don't go down that road. It only leads to major problems. Again, author Philip Keller said, completely convinced that his deliberate disobedience was morally justified. Morally justified. It's amazing what we can rationalize to the point of morally justifying something. I was reading a book years ago by a pastor in New York who said he got a letter one day from his tre treasurer. Well, he was his ex-treasurer by this time. His treasurer gave him a letter and said that he was had embezzled $100,000 in the church and that he was running off with another woman in the church. And he, near the end of the letter, he says, and God understands why we have to do this. Yeah. See how twisted your thinking gets when you begin to start rationalizing and justifying? Again, Philip Keller said, I quote, completely convinced that his deliberate disobedience was morally justified. Aiken smiled softly to himself. His future was totally assured. This was a secret store of wealth that would stand him in good stead. Little did he know it would soon see him dead. I don't know if Keller was trying to be a poet there, but it's got that poetic ring to it. It reminds me of what James warned us about in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. You all know this. James said, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. You know, I can't help myself. God's tempting me here. James said, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted. When he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Well, that truth, that principle, actually worked its way out into Achan's life. The problem with sin is, and here's one of the things we rationalize as we sin. Hey, it's only affecting me. Have you heard that before? You try to talk to somebody who is involved in some destructive behavior, some sin. You try to 
admonish them to get out of it, you know, challenge them on it and so on. Often they will say to you, hey, I'm only hurting myself. Uh, unfortunately, our sin seldom affects only our lives. It is a ripple effect that often hurts and even destroys others as well. This is exactly what happened in the story. We've seen God's directive, Achan's disobedience. Thirdly, we see Israel's defeat. Starting in verse 2, we read, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Aven, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not worry, weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, from Israel, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Sabarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. This defeat absolutely stunned Joshua and the army of Israel to the point where it says their hearts melted and became like water. In other words, their courage and their confidence completely drained away. And they suddenly went from conquerors to cowards overnight. What happened? I mean, I'm sure they're thinking, what happened? What, what just happened? We just beat the strongest kid on the block last week or a few days ago. Jericho was the toughest people, the strongest stronghold in the land of Canaan. Now they're going up against this tiny little town called Ai. 12,000 people. So who knows how many fighting men? Maybe 3,000. So Israel sends 3,000. And they get their butts kicked. Not only that, 36 guys die. I'm sure they're like, what just happened? They were stunned. I mean, at this point, no one really knew what had taken place. No one except one man, the guy whose name was Trouble. He knew what went on. Look, over the years I've had to deal with my share of Achans. They are trouble. They come in to cause trouble. And unfortunately, they wind up taking a few people down with them every time. It's a sad thing to see it. Sometimes they are believers who come into a church like ours, and initially they're very excited, very enthusiastic. I can't tell you how many times people have started coming to our church and, and sat uh, in for a service and heard the worship music and then the teaching, and so encouraging, just happy to be here, thanking God that they found a good church, and it's a joy to see them then every week and faces smiling as the Word of God is being taught. But I've seen with some folks over the course of the next several months or even a year or so, their countenance begins to change. It's kind of like uh, Jacob talking about Laban. It says, Jacob noticed that Laban's countenance was not for him like it had once been. Okay? See, you're looking at me. I'm looking at you guys. And I see many times when people's faces, well, their countenance is not as it once was. They're not smiling and nodding enthusiastically. Now they're scowling a little bit at me and shaking their head. I'm thinking, okay. Yes, and that's happened too. They start in the front and they move their way back. I can always tell when a person's on their way out because they slowly move back. You folks in the back row there, don't, I'm not picking on you. Um, sometimes they're believers though, you know? And, um, you know, Hebrews 12, verse 15 says, Beware, lest any in the church, is what he's talking about, uh, lest any root of bitterness springing up 
cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Be careful that you don't let a critical heart poison you. Look, this is not a perfect church. We know that. I'll, you don't have to go far to see that. Just study us a little bit. We're not perfect. But I like to think we love the Lord. I like to think we're sincere. You're never going to find a perfect church. And as the old saying goes, if you do, don't join it. You'll ruin it. <laughs> so at one point, we all have to work together, right? The Bible says iron sharpeneth what? Iron. Hey, we're going to rub each other the wrong way sometimes. Sparks are going to fly. But you know what? It's all part of the honing process, right? As God is fitting us together as a unified body. And I, and I love to see that, you know? I love to see God working things together. He's teaching us to love each other. He's teaching us to die to self. Uh, you know, that's what conflict does at times. Hey, families fight, right? I mean, families, you find me a, show me a family that doesn't fight, and I'll show you a family that's not alive, all right? Every family fights from time to time. But families know they've got to work together at one point because they're a family. If you just up and leave, well, you don't learn how to work with us. We don't learn how to, we're not blessed by you because you have gifts and things that God has given you that he, he wants to use here. So be careful, okay? Don't be an Achan, okay? Don't be an Achan because Achan wound up Achan. You're going to see that next week. But anyway. But then we know that Jesus and Paul, Peter and Jude and the others warned us that there would come into the church those people who were not even Christians. Maybe they thought they were believers or Maybe they knew they were flat-out deceivers who had come here for some nefarious purpose. I don't know. I know that there are people in witches' covens and other things that infiltrate churches to try to bring them down. I don't know how common that is, but I think we'd be shocked if we knew how it was more common than we realized. But I think a lot of these folks really think they're saved, but they're really not. And they come in, and again, they're really not here to be a blessing. They're here to take their takers. Uh, and they're not givers at all. And uh, they're defiled themselves, so they can't help but be, def be defiling to others. Titus spoke of these, or excuse me, Paul in writing to Titus in uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 15 and 16, Paul said, To the pure, to the saved, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So we have to be on guard. The whole body of Christ needs to be on guard against those who would sow discord, against those that would defile and bring the church down. We all have a responsibility to do this. I'm not trying to, to make you the, the thought police or, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to say if somebody approaches you and tries to tear down your church family, don't put up with that. I mean, you confront them with that. But commentators have offered several reasons why Israel was defeated by Ai. Okay, I'll just give you these quickly. I think the first one is kind of obvious, isn't it? Israel had become self-confident. Israel had become self-confident. The first reason that people give for Israel's defeat was that Israel had become self-confident, and they point to verse 3 as proof. Verse 3 says, and they returned to Joshua. Now, Joshua sent out some men to spy out Ai, to reconnoiter the city, to find out what's going on. Not wrong. That was not wrong to do. The spies returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't, do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. Hey, these, these guys are nothing. We just beat the biggest kid in the block. 
Joshua, you don't even have to go with us. Stay home. We'll take a few guys, beat them up, take care of them, that kind of thing, right? See, God had gone to great lengths in the Battle of Jericho, as we already studied, to ensure that Israel could not, could not take credit for the victory that God was about to give them at Jericho. He did that by giving them, as we've already looked at, a very foolish strategy, right? We've looked at that. Why did God make them go through this foolish deal? March around the city once a day, six days. Seventh day, march around seven times. Shout, God knock the walls down, go in, take the city. He did that because he did not want them thinking it was them. If God would have said, Joshua, you take the guys and storm the city and and scale the walls and blah, blah, blah. And if they did that and they won, they would have all been puffed up saying, look what great warriors we are. The guy says, no, no, no. I want this first battle against the strongest of the strongholds of the enemy. I want to take it right out of your hands. I want to make it so ridiculous, the strategy, so that you will not take credit for the victory I give you. He went to great lengths to ensure they would not have anything to boast about. And yet they seem to have forgotten that all they did was march around the city a bunch of times and shout. I get the impression here that they felt like they had done something where, wow, we're so tough. Hey, most of the guys can just stay home. We'll just go out and a few of us will just take the city of Ai. No problem. See, unfortunately, this happens to all of us, I think. God gives us victory over some sin or problem in our lives. And after a while, at first we're thanking God, aren't we? I mean, it's not immediate. At first we're so thankful. We're praising the Lord. Oh, thank you, God. Oh, what a wonderful victory you've given me. But then after a while, we start slowly, you know, thinking, well, maybe I did do something here. Slowly we begin to, you know, think that we did have victory. Of course, the more we think like this, the more highly we think of ourselves. Well, when that happens, pride sets in. And as God reminds us in his word, pride goes before a fall. I thought that Ellen Redpath had some good thoughts on this in his commentary in the book of Joshua. He said, and I quote, there is no moment so perilous. As when for the first time in the Christian life, the man of God has experienced deliverance from sin. At such times, we begin to take pride in ourselves and to boast that our own arm has saved us. We so easily imagine that because we have achieved victory once, God has imparted to us some new strength which will see us through all our earthly journey. Alas, how utterly contradictory to the truth that is. The fact is that apart from the grace of God and the blood of Jesus, the smallest temptations will be too powerful for us. The victories we win in fellowship with the risen Christ impart no strength to us. The victory you won yesterday will not bring you power today. The greatest lesson that the child of God has to learn is the lesson learned by Paul that in my flesh there dwells no good thing and that when I am weak, I am strong. For the greatest cause of failure in Christian living is just this. Imagining that the victory God has given us has imparted strength to us to win every battle when it has done nothing of the kind. Remember, fellow Christian, the first reason for failure at AI was self-confidence. And I agree with that. We see it in the text. But number two, the second thing that many offer is why, to why uh, Israel was defeated against uh, AI was that Joshua, as the leader now, didn't stop to pray and seek guidance from God. Unlike the Battle of Jericho, remember? How he was really overwhelmed at the size, the enormity of the task God was leading him to do. Take on Jericho. Wow. We've never taken on a stronghold before. We've had battles in the wilderness, for sure, but we've never gone up against a fortress. 
This was new territory for Joshua. This was a new phase in his faith towards God. God was uh, upping the ante, if you will. This was a new thing. This really was asking Joshua and the men of Israel to have a lot more faith than they had had prior to this. God always wants to increase our faith incrementally through the challenges and such that we face. Now, when Joshua was facing the battle of Jericho, man, he was praying. In fact, the eve of the battle, he's out praying. And the Lord meets him and talks to him and so on. But with this battle, I think Joshua himself was overconfident and flushed with victory. He doesn't seek the mind of God. What he does do is he takes the advice of his men. Verse 3, And the spies returned to Joshua and said to him, You know, don't let all the people go up, but let only two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Don't weary all the people. Therefore, the people of Ai are few. Look, there's an important lesson here for all of us to learn, all of God's children to learn from. Often when we're facing a great challenge, crisis, or problem in our lives, no one has to tell us to go and pray and seek God, right? Nobody has to tell you when you're facing a tremendous trial or crisis or adversity or something. Nobody's got to tell you, you know, you better go pray and seek the Lord. You can't get off your face. You are always praying because of the enormity of this problem. It goes way beyond anything you can do to overcome it. So nobody's got to tell us to go pray in times like that. It's almost automatic. But when it comes to the, to the AIs in our walk with God, well, these are the problems that seem small and easily managed, don't they? They're the no-brainers. Why pray? Why bother God? We'll just handle it ourselves. We're going to take care of it ourselves. How are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to just lean on my own wisdom and understanding, and I'm going to just figure it out, and I'm going to take care of it. We well, see, you're doing the very thing God has warned us not to do. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. If you don't do that, you're going to be winging it. You're going to be going your own way. And you're going to make what was a small problem a very large problem. You know what the word AI means? Ruin. Ruin. And the AIs in our lives, the so-called little problems, will lead to ruin if we take them lightly and try to handle them ourselves instead of seeking counsel from the Lord. When I say, I'm not saying problems so small. I mean, there, there is a, uh, a point where, you know, God doesn't want to micromanage our lives either. I'm not trying to tell you that every single decision you have to make, you need to pray about. God doesn't care what socks you wear in the morning. He doesn't care what you have to eat for breakfast. All right? It's just that when we talk about issues and things that, you know, they're not gigantic, but they're still important. Seek God. Pray to God. Let me tell you this. If Joshua had taken the battle of Ai with the same kind of seriousness, humility, and prayer that he had the battle of Jericho, God would have revealed to him, Joshua, you guys can't go up against Ai. There is sin in the camp. And until you deal with that sin, I'm not going to be with you in any other battle. If Joshua had done that, obviously 36 guys would still be alive. And Israel would not have suffered their first and only humiliating defeat in their conquest of Canaan. Very important point here. We need to seek God. We need to make decisions based on his guidance, not on our own wisdom. Well, Joshua sends the guys to battle. They get whooped pretty good. 36 guys have died. Serious stuff. So after we see Israel's defeat, we see then Joshua's dismay. 
Starting in verse 6, it says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. That was all a sign of mourning. And Joshua said to the Lord, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we have been contented and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before, their, uh, before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And then what are you going to do for your great name? Now you've done it, Lord. Now you've really done it. Amazing. You know, at this point, obviously, Joshua does not know what Achan has done. As far as he knows, and he should have known better, but as far as he knows, this was God letting down his people. It was God not keeping his word to his people. Joshua is accusing God of unfaithfulness. He is saying, basically, Lord, if you weren't going to keep your word to us, if you weren't going to give us victory, then why did you bother bringing us over the Jordan at all? You know what? We would have rather lived in the wilderness. So we could have died over there as well as over here. But no, you promised us you're going to lead us over here. You promised us victory over the whole land. You give us a stunning victory over Jericho. Then you abandon us with AI. We can't figure this out. Lord, you know what? This doesn't even make sense to us. Why would you get our hopes up if you were going to let us down like this? Look, lots going on in Joshua's heart right now. First of all, he's not only grieving for the loss of his men and panic-stricken over the prospect of trying to fight the powerful nations of Canaan without the help of God, because in his mind, God has abandoned them for good, but also he was utterly confused by the actions of the Lord in this situation, or may I say the inaction of the Lord. God did not act. He did not help them. This was not the God that he had come to know and trust over 40-plus years. Remember now, ever since Egypt, and God leading his people out with a mighty and outstretched arm, all the years of wandering in the wilderness, how God provided for them and took care of them. Not even their sandals wore out, we read in the book of Numbers in Deuteronomy. And all of a sudden, this God that he has known for all these years, that he has trusted implicitly with his life, that he has always known to be a faithful God, all of a sudden, his God acts in a way that's completely contradictory to all that he has come to know and believe about him. Have you ever come into a situation where all of a sudden God allows something in your life that goes against everything you've always believed about God? You believe he's a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God, and all of a sudden something happens to you that throws your concept of God right out the window. It rocks you to the very core of your being. You don't even know this God anymore. I don't think Joshua even knew who this God was anymore. I think at this point, this is my personal feelings, that his concept of God was crushed, his faith was destroyed. I think that at this point, at least, Joshua felt like quitting. I don't think he felt he could, he could serve a capricious God like this, who promised one thing and then did something else. You know, it's amazing how quick we are to blame God when things go wrong. It's amazing how prone we are to impugn the character of a holy, righteous, and perfect God, instead of asking ourselves, as Joshua should have done, you know, this is not like God. God is always faithful. God always keeps his word unless there's disobedience in our lives. Lord, what have we done that has caused you to act this way? Show us our sin, Lord, because something is not right. You don't remove your hand of blessing and protection from your people if... They're doing everything right. Something is wrong here. 
See, that's what Joshua should have done. That's what all of us should do, by the way. Whenever we are faced with a situation where we feel that God is not acting according to his character. Look, the problem is never with God. The problem is with ourselves. Or, look it, sometimes God is just really testing us to teach us. Look at Job. Job is a righteous guy, right? The Bible says up front he was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. And yet God allowed the devil to get at him, put him through some pretty horrendous things to teach Job some real lessons in faith. If you're going through a prolonged period where it seems like God isn't answering your prayers, you're going through one trial or adversity after another, the first thing you need to do is sit down and take inventory of yourself, spiritual inventory of your life. All right, something is wrong here. Lord, have I done something wrong? And, and let me just say this to you, folks. I said to the first service, usually, usually, it doesn't take a whole lot of probing. We know what we're doing wrong, don't we? It's not like there's some hidden dark secret we've got to root out, you know. Oh, wow, I never even know that, knew that was there. You know, not, it's not like that. It's either we're, we're stealing something, we're ripping the company off, we're sleeping around, we're doing something. Something is happening in our life we know is wrong. And God is trying to get our attention. But see, that takes work. We don't like to look at ourselves honestly. We want to we think that we're okay. The problem is God, okay? Not me. It can't be me. Can't, it can't be me. Why can't it? Because it just can't be. I'm perfect, I guess. I don't know what I think I am. So we quickly blame God for being unfair and or unfaithful. We make foolish accusations against him. And we want to walk away from our faith and call it quits oftentimes. This reminds me of something that happened in David's life. King David. This whole idea of God um, acting in a way that completely threw Joshua for a loop. I mean, here he's going along serving the Lord. Things are going great. God is faithful. Things are happening just the way God said they would. They go up against Jericho, the toughest uh, people in the land of Canaan. God gives them a stunning victory. All of a sudden they hit the town of Ai and things fall apart. And it seems like God is completely acting in a way that is to totally unlike the God that Joshua has come to know and trust and love all these years. It threw him for a loop. It shook his faith to the foundation, I'm convinced. And I think possibly even caused him to want to give up. It reminds me of this, something that happened in David's life that was very similar. You remember the story out of 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. Before David was king of, of Israel, Saul was king. Saul really didn't have a heart for God. Saul was not, was not a man for God's own heart. Saul was not a worshiper. David was a worshiper. David had a heart for worship. That's why God called him a man after my own heart. Saul was a politician. Saul talked the talk, but in reality, all he cared about was how the people perceived him, uh, how the people praised him for being such a great leader, and so on. So Saul was not uh, really a worshiper. And one day Israel was in battle with the Philistines. It shows you how far away from God the whole nation had gotten. Things weren't going so well for Israel. And so somebody had the bright idea of getting the Ark of the Covenant and bringing it into the battle, which was forbidden by God, by the way. Bring it into the battle. It'll give us good luck, they thought, no doubt. Use it as kind of a, a rabbit's foot or a good luck charm. Well, God's not going to bless that. So they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. The Philistines saw it. They knew what it was. They screamed, men of Philistia, you better fight with all your heart. They brought their gods into the battle. Well, this energized the enemy. They rose up. They defeated Israel, captured the Ark of the Covenant, took it back to their, one of their chief cities. And God 
began to strike the people in that city. There were uh, rats, first of all, that infested the, the town. There were tumors that the people began to, to get, boils. So they said, look, send it somewhere else. So they sent it to another Philistine city, same thing. Rats began to infest the city. Horrible, nasty, physical things, tumors and boils began to break out the people. Let's send it to another city. As they, as they brought the thing, they took it on, put it on a cart. They brought it to the next city. The men of the city were outside waiting for them to don't even think about it. We don't want that thing here. What are we going to do with it? Send it back to Israel. So they did. Hooked up a couple of milking cows, put the ark on that cart, and they sent it off to Israel. And it wound up in the house of Abinadab for 20 years. 20 years. Now you have to understand that. You couldn't properly worship God without the ark because it represented God's presence. Saul, he didn't care. He wasn't a man of worship. He didn't care if the ark stayed there for 120 years. After that time, though, around that time, David became king. He replaced Saul, who died in battle. David was a man of worship. David wanted the people in Israel to worship God from their hearts. He realized the only way that was going to be possible was if he brought the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem. And so we read the story. Now, you got to get it in your mind's eye what's going on, all right? I mean, they're all excited, aren't they? They're so excited. They're going to take the ark and bring it to Jerusalem, and we're going to have a nationwide worship service for the Lord. We're going to really become a people that worship God again. And they're all excited. Big procession, you know, big parade. So they come to the house of Abinadab, and what do they do? They follow the Philistine example. They took the ark, and they put it on a cart hooked up to a couple of oxen. On the oxen, a couple of brothers were driving the oxen, Ahio and Dezza. And here they go back to Jerusalem now. And again, it's a celebration. There's music. There's dancing. As they're, as they're walking along the road there, it's a tremendous thing. All of a sudden, it says, the cart hit a rut in the road. And it began to totter back and forth. Well, it looked like the Ark of the Covenant was going to totter off into the dirt. Uzzah didn't want that to happen, so he reaches back and grabs the ark to, to steady it, and it says the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and he struck him dead on the spot. You can imagine that put a damper on the festivities. I mean, especially for David. Just like Joshua, this threw him for absolute loop. I mean, he was absolutely stunned. I mean, here we are, Lord, doing something good for you. You want us to worship you? What is this all about? You kill a guy who's trying to do good? What, what is, I don't understand this, Lord. He called the name of the place Perez Uzzah, which means in the Hebrew, outburst against Uzzah. You get the idea. Like God was a hothead who just in a moment of rage killed a guy, an innocent man, for no reason. And it says that David said, look, take it, the thing and do whatever you want with it. I'm going home. And they went and took the ark and brought it to the house of Obed-Edom. And it says that David was afraid of the Lord that day. You know what? That's not a bad thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Sometimes when we draw close to God out of love, enjoying his love and his grace and his mercy, he's such a good God, and we love to draw close to God and we love to relate to God in, those, in that way, sometimes we begin to take sin a little lightly. Sometimes we get so used to the goodness, the love, the grace and mercy of God in our lives we begin to forget that he's still a holy and righteous and just God whose anger still burns hot against sin. A God who cannot tolerate even to look upon sin. But you see, if David had feared the Lord as much before the incident as he did after, Uzzah would never have died. 
You see, God had prescribed a very specific way the ark was to be moved. You never touched the ark. And by the way, you didn't put it on a cart. You didn't put it on a cart and move it anywhere. That's how the Philistines did it. That's how the world, they represent the world. That's how the world does the work of God. Any way they want, right? You've got a lot of religious unbelievers in the world, a lot of denominations made up of people that really don't know the Lord. And they try to serve the Lord in the church using what? A cart? What do you mean? What is a cart? It's big wheels and boards, right? The church is trying to do the work of God using big wheels and boards. Hotshot preachers and board members who sit around trying to brainstorm how they're going to build God's church instead of realizing in Acts chapter 5, it says the Lord will add to his church daily those being saved. The problem with the church today is we're trying to employ the wisdom of man and not the power of the Spirit to build God's church. It's like Leonard Ravenhill said one time in a book I was reading, Why Revival Tarries. The problem with the church, he said today, is you've got too many men sitting around the boardroom planning instead of in the prayer room agonizing. That's the problem today. Too many men sitting around the boardroom organizing is what he said instead of in the prayer room agonizing. You say, but yes, an innocent man. I mean, Uzzah, but that was wrong of God to kill an innocent man like that. Let me tell you something. In the law, God said how the ark was to be transported. He never touched it. It represented God's presence. You don't just handle God any way you want. You approach God in a holy way according to what he has said. And God had designed the ark with rings on the bottom of it, right? And when they were to move the thing, they were to walk backwards and cover it. And then they were to slip poles in through the rings. And they were to be, it was to be picked up and it was to be carried on the shoulders of a very specific family in the tribe of Levi, the Kohathites. From the time the Kohathites were little boys, they were trained in the proper transportation of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you realize that Uzzah was a Kohathite? He knew better. He knew what God's word had said. He disregarded it just like David. David, in his zeal to do a good thing, did it in the wrong way. Let that be a lesson to all of us. It's good to want to do a good thing for God. You have to do it in a right way if God's going to bless it. Which means we go to the word of God and see what God has said about this. And then I do it according to what he has said. And if I do, he will bless. Well, after about three months... David gets word that the Ark of the Covenant has been in Obed-Edom's house all this time, and God has really been blessing this family. So David gets up the courage to try again. But you know what he does this time? He goes to the Scriptures and finds out what God said about how this thing was to be moved. And he does it God's way, and it comes back to Jerusalem, and God blesses greatly. Look, in the Christian life, God has promised us that in Christ, we have entered into basically our spiritual promised land. As long as we live in the Spirit, the Spirit represents our spiritual promised land. As long as we're not in the wilderness of carnality and disobedience and so on, as long as we're seeking to walk with God in the Spirit every day, we have entered into our promised land. And I believe that God has promised us, just like Israel, it's going to be a land of victory. So then why do we suffer defeat the same way Israel suffered defeat in the land of victory, in the land of promise? Because they didn't do what God said. If you do something that God has said not to do. I don't care how well-intentioned you are. And it blows up on you and things go bad. You can't blame God. You've got to go back, repent, find out what God has said, do it his way, and he will bless. I'm convinced that we're not going to stumble and fall over the Jerichos in our life. You know why? We're too busy praying for the big things, the big challenges. They have us overwhelmed. We're always praying about those things. The devil's going to get us with the AIs in our lives, the small things that we take for granted. 
and we just assume we're big enough, we're strong enough, we're wise enough to handle them ourselves. So next week, we will look at how God responds to Joshua's foolish charge and what God says about how to fix the problem, and we'll see then what happened as we continue on with the story. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us in your word everything that pertains to life and godliness, that you have guaranteed us victory in the Christian life if we will do what you have said. Forgive us, Lord, when you give us victory over some area of our life. Forgive us for beginning to think we had a hand in it. Maybe we did most of it. We begin to take credit. We get puffed up with pride, and now we're ready to fall. Give us the grace, Lord, not to do that, not to go down that way. But, Lord, we want you to be with us. Guide us. Lead us. We want to do it your way, not our own way. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask that you would bless these remaining studies in this book, that we might learn how to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ and to win the victories you've promised us. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.